We are embarking today on a very exciting sermon series this summer called Superheroes of the Bible. And the reason we're doing this is because we have family worship. We have all the kiddos in here, and we want to make this something that is fun and exciting and applicable. But then as I got thinking about it, the more excited I got because we talk about a lot of biblical truths in here and concepts, but sometimes we forget that there is a whole treasure trove of beautiful, exciting Bible stories in God's Word. And if you didn't grow up in that environment of church or Sunday school, maybe you didn't have the opportunity to hear all these stories. So we have chosen six characters in the Bible that we're going to call superheroes because of the incredible things that they were able to do with the help of God. And we're also going to identify what their super characteristic was, like what it was about that individual or those individuals that God was able to attach to and make it a great, exciting event. We're going to talk about... um, Elijah, Elijah next week in 1 Kings chapter 18. And we're talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we're going to talk about Esther. Uh, so let's see, who else? We've got Samson. Um, we're going to talk about six different characters of the Bible through this series. And every week we're going to have little handouts for the kiddos with activity pages and free crayons so that they can go through and just kind of at least have something to take home with them or work on here. And then I'm already letting you know, parents, that next week is is Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 18. So maybe you can kind of be reading through that, talking about it with your kiddos and getting them prepped for the message for next week as Elijah goes up against 400 prophets of Baal and wins handily. It's a great, great story. So this week, our character is going to be Jonathan and his armor bearer, kind of like the superhero and his sidekick. You have Jonathan and the armor bearer. And this is going to be out of 1 Samuel chapter 14, if you have your Bibles. 1 Samuel chapter 14. And if you back up a few chapters and gain a little bit of history here, I want to kind of help you best I can to kind of bring things up to date. When God set apart the Jewish people, people for himself and created a nation, he wanted to be their king. He wanted to lead them. He established what was known as a theocracy. In other words, I'm in charge of you. And he used prophets and godly men to communicate his messages to the Jewish people. They looked around and they saw all the other societies around them who had kings and they just wanted a king. And remarkably, They were warned that if you have a king, he's going to tax you. He's going to take your kids to war. He's going to, but no, they wanted a king because they wanted to be just like everybody else. Hmm. So God allowed them to have a king. It wasn't his first wish for them. And so he selected this young man named Saul, who was tall, powerful, good looking. I can identify him, identify with him in so many ways. You knew that was coming, didn't you? So... So Saul becomes the king, and in chapter 9, he specifically is given the task of delivering the Jewish people from the hand of the Philistines. The Philistines was this group of huge, big, mean men that lived near um, the Jewish people, and they would attack them, and they held them uh, captive, and they would oppress them. They took, like, for instance, they took all of their, all of their uh, weapons of warfare away from them. 
and they shut down all the blacksmith shops. So the only place they could get their tools sharpened, their pitchforks and such, was at the Philistine blacksmith shops. They had to pay to have it done because they didn't want them having any implements of war, any, any weapons of war. So King Saul had initial, an initial victory against them, and then the Philistines built up their army and began to oppress the Israelite people. And there comes a situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where Saul is at a standstill. He doesn't know what to do. In fact, as we find Saul in chapter 14 here, he's actually sitting underneath a pomegranate tree. He has no idea what to do. And his force, his fighting force of 3,000 men have been dwindled down to only 600 men. And they're hiding in caves and under rocks. They don't want to fight the Philistines. They're afraid of them because the Philistines have ramped up their forces. And they're in a cliff fortress, a garrison at the top of a cliff near Israel. And they're intimidating. They're making fun of them. They're calling out to them. They're attacking them, and Saul doesn't know what to do because all he has is 600 men, and most of them just have pitchforks. They don't even have swords. The Bible says that Jonathan, his son, had a sword, and that Saul had a sword. They also had, the Philistines also had 3,000 chariots. Now, that doesn't mean as much today, but like chariots was a game changer. There was a, so like, it would be like if you were fighting in the Civil War times, and one side gave everybody fully automatic weapons. Like it, it was like a game, that, that kind of a game changer where one side has muskets, right? They got to do the, and the other side had, you know, machine guns. It's a big game changer. Like if you were in World War I and you're in the trench warfare and the other side discovers jet pilots and fighters and bombing, it would, it would completely change the outcome of the war. And here you have an innumerable amount. The Bible says the Philistine army was as the, was as the sands of the sea against 600 men. I can't, I can't really blame Saul for sitting where he was, not knowing what to do. But then there was Jonathan. Jonathan was his son. And Jonathan had a man that was with him called his armor bearer. And the armor bearer was somebody who just took care of the main man. And Jonathan was upset that nothing was being done against the Philistines. So Jonathan tells his armor bearer, (laughs) let you and I go. Let us go up against and defeat these Philistines. Now, I'm not sure what the first response was, but the response that the Bible records is, all right, if God's put that in your heart, then let's do it. So his armor bearer gets kudos here, right? Because not only was God working in Jonathan's heart, but God would have had to work in his armor bearer's heart to support what Jonathan was going to do. So Jonathan makes this great statement. I believe it's in verse 6 of chapter 14. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. He's saying it doesn't matter if there's 600 of us or if there's two of us. If God's going to bring the victory, it doesn't matter how many of us are fighting against the Philistines. How much trust did he have to have in God for him to be able to honestly, with a straight face, 
See, God can save with two people just like he could 600. He said, let's go over and defeat the enemy. Even though there's only two of them. Even though they were in a a fortified garrison, a, a, a fort up on top of a cliff. So they traveled to the Philistine garrison. And they had to go through this passageway. And there were two huge rocks outcropping. And the Bible actually gives them names. They were that significant. So he's walking through these two rocky outcroppings, going to where the garrison was located. And he looks at his armor bearer and he says, all right, so here's the plan. We're going to go stand at the base of the garrison. And if the Philistine soldiers say, stay where you are, we're going to come down to you, then we're going to stand our ground. But if they say, come up to us, then we'll know that God has given us the victory. How would you like to have been that armor bearer? Like, that's your plan? Right? (laughs) Okay, that's the best we have, right? So... I don't know what the, like, so, so they, they, they get there, and they're standing at the base of the garrison, like down the rocky cliff, and the men of the Philistines see them, and they begin to make fun of them. And they say stuff like, well, look, they, they finally crawled out of their holes, and there's only two of them. These are the only two that were brave enough to come up here and try and defeat us. The the Bible actually says that they look at him and say, come on up, we'll show you a thing. Which is an odd thing, but then we say it too, right? I'll show you a thing or two. We say that all the time. I'll show you a thing or two. So they're saying, come on up and we're going to show you a thing. We'll we'll show you what we're made of. We'll show you what it's going to look like to go to war with the Philistines. Well, Jonathan Hart already told his armor bearer, then that's, that's the secret words, right? They're telling us to come up through. So the Bible says they actually went over, hand over fist, climbing up the rocks to get to the garrison. And then it kind of fast forwards. It doesn't tell us how they got in the city. It doesn't tell us exactly what transpired. But what it does tell us was that in a very short period of time, the first wave of attack, which sounds funny because you only have two men, the first wave of attack 20 Philistine soldiers lie dead on the ground. And when they knew that God was going to give them the victory because they were told to come on up, then they, perce- they perceived, they, per- they did the next thing they were going to do. Perceived, no. They proceeded, thank you. They proceeded the attack, and the Bible says something like about a half an acre of ground. There were 20 dead Philistines. And what would happen is Jonathan would like slay them and they would fall down. And then his armor bearer would finish them off. It's just, I don't know, man. The guy in me thinks that's got to be a great action scene. Like he's just cutting them up and they're dropping. I'm sorry if you're really young in here. And then the armor bearer is finishing them off. And God began to give a great victory. So here's, here's what happened. The Philistines were so taken aback and they were so flustered and confused by what was happening that they began to attack each other. 
because they were so confused. And then God sends an earthquake. And God sends an earthquake, and you know what happens? Everything gets discombobulated and gets shaken. Anybody ever been in an earthquake before? My family has. I've jumped on a bed in a hotel before. Kind of felt the same thing. But it's, and they began to fight against each other. So meanwhile, Saul's men from far away notices the commotion happening at the garrison, and they gather their army together. And then by this time they go and the Philistines are fighting themselves and Saul and his men come with their pitchforks and they end up winning the battle and defeating the Philistines. It was a miraculous victory that only God could have orchestrated, right? That's what's the beautiful thing. It wasn't that that there was this great army and that Saul was a great leader or that Jonathan was a great leader. It was just two men decided to take God at his word that he was going to defeat the Philistines. It's called trust. So that's the super characteristic, if you will, of Jonathan was trust. A simple definition for trust is just reliance on the integrity, strength, or ability of another. But I like this. It's believing enough to do something about it. Like, I mean, we trust God for our salvation, right? We trust God to, 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 to take us to heaven maybe when, when, when we die. And, and like, we, we trust him with that. But then, like, when it comes to our day in and day out and our every day and what we live, and, and that's kind of tough. But look at the difference. We trust him with our soul, but not our life. God, I know that, yeah, I know you want me to come to church every week and, 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 we can debate that, and I know you want us to, to give, and I know you want us to serve you, and we, I know you want me to, to, to get to know you better and to, and to read the Bible. It's just tough, you know, with my schedule, and, and we come up with all of these excuses and don't realize that if we would just simply trust that our life would be totally different. Now, I don't know what you're going through in life, and I don't know what, what battles that you're up against. But the beautiful thing about this story is that if God can use two men to defeat an innumerable army like the Philistines with 3,000 chariots, what are you facing that God can help you win the battle in? Or what area of your life requires you just to trust God? So here are a few truths, a few lessons and I know that, that if you were speaking this morning, you could probably come up with different ones or more than this, but these are the few that I thought were the most applicable. And the first thing is that God is the force multiplier, right? So whatever it is that you can contribute to your life or whatever it is that you can, can insert into the situation to make it better, that's fine. Do what you feel God wants you to do, but God is the force multiplier, he is the unknown variable. And I'm about to lose half of you when I refer to algebra. All right? But he is the unknown variable. He is the X. Like, we don't always know what that X is, right? But whenever you discover X, it's going to make the equation equal, right? I mean, it's, so X is, is whatever it takes to get it done. 
So whatever you can do, you contribute that, and then God takes over the rest. He is the force multiplier. He takes whatever you are commanded to do, or whatever you feel God has called you to do, or however God has asked you to react in this situation, and we trust him, and we believe that he will take the rest on and handle it. He is the force multiplier. I would encourage you to read the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says there that God chooses. I mean, he specifically selects the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. That's me. He, on purpose, he chooses the weak things, not the mighty. He even says this, he chooses the things which are not, like they're of no consequence. And the reason is, so that he would get the credit. Because if you walk away from the situation and say, well, that happened because I'm so great, then God didn't get the glory. But God says that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians. And he loves to pull through for his children. Man, he loves to make it happen for you. God is the force multiplier. Second lesson I got from this story, this story is that Jonathan's success was not a matter of ability, but of trust. It, so, so here's the thing. His dad was big, tall, good-looking, powerful, soldier. So it's not about ability. It's about our level of trust. So here's where we have to understand the sovereignty of God. God is good, God is powerful, and God knows everything. And we have to trust in his sovereign will. In other words, what God thinks needs to happen, we have to be okay with that. He will always do what's best whether we understand it or not. So look at, the, look at the plan that Jonathan had. It shows his trust in God. We're going to stand here, and if they come down to us, we're going to stand here. But if they say, come up there, then we know God's given us the victory. What he's saying is, either way, we're going to do this. We believe that God wants them defeated, we believe that God can do it with just two of us. And so here's the plan. It's the best that we can do. We're going to leave the rest up to God. And if God pulls through, great. If not, he's still God. That's the sovereignty of God. Are you okay with God being God? Are you okay with God doing what God thinks is best for you or best for them? Now, I don't know who's in your mind. I don't know what you're going through, but God is God, and we have to let God be God because I'm just Eric, and God does not always fit in my box for him, and I don't get it sometimes, and I disagree sometimes, but I do believe that he loves me. I believe that he's good. I believe that he's powerful enough to change the situation if he wanted to. And I believe that he truly wants what's best for me. Do we trust him enough with that? It's not a, matter of, not a matter of ability. It's a matter of whether or not we just trust him. 
And Jonathan trusted God. And his armor bearer did too. Third lesson here, and we'll be done. And I know this is horrible use of the word, all right? The problem was not the trustee. The problem was the truster. God wanted to defeat the Philistines. He was not the problem. He's the one that was to be trusted. He was the trustee. The problem was not with the trustee. The problem was with the truster. Neither neither, neither Saul nor Jonathan thought they could beat the Philistines. Neither one of them could. Saul saw the enemy, did nothing but hide under a tree. Jonathan saw the enemy and trusted God. Let me tell you, God is trustworthy. Did you hear me? God is trustworthy. So what's your situation? God is trustworthy. He's worthy of your trust. But God is not the problem. The difference in your life is not whether or not God is good, because he's good, but whether or not you trust that he is good. The problem is not whether or not God is powerful, because he is powerful. The, the problem is whether or not you trust him to be powerful in this situation. The, powerful, the, 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 the problem is not, is God, does he have enough knowledge? Does he know what I'm going through? Yes, he does. But do you trust him? And do you trust his will for your life? God wants to do great things in your life. Hear that, please. God wants to do great things in your life. He wants to do great things through us. He wants to help us win our battles. He wants to help us with our situations. He wants to show himself strong. We have to trust him to do so. A verse came to mind this week as I was studying this. I couldn't get away from it. Actually, it's like a whole passage. But check out Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is the force multiplier. And I don't have it up on the screen, but let me just read to you the rest of that passage. It's, it's actually Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? That's just beautiful. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a powerful passage of Scripture. God is the force multiplier. The problem is not with him. The problem is with our level of trust. And I would encourage you to let God be God. And you step out in faith and you trust the one who got you here. What I'd love to know is what area that is in your life right now. Where can you prove him? Where can you put him to the test? And just trust him to take care of the problem. Sometimes it's a matter of taking your hands off and letting God do what God does. Sometimes it's a matter of you being obedient and taking the step and trusting him for the results. Let's pray. Well, Father, I feel this morning that we have an opportunity to show how big our God is. Our God is good. Our God knows our situation. And our God is powerful enough to do something about it. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.